Well, Happy New Year, New Hope. Good to see you. You're looking well. Some of you are looking tanned. Some of you are looking more relaxed at the end of last year. I don't know about for you, but the end of my last year was frenetic with multiple atheists, um, sons getting married, son, another son getting engaged, babies arriving on the scene, children arriving from overseas, children about to go back overseas. But it was a hectic last year. But this is the beginning of a new year. And one of the things that I really wanted to start out this year is to take a look at what God says in our first series about how he changes us from the inside out. See, this is completely different from a religion. A religion says, don't do that. Don't do this. Don't say that. I know. Because when I became a Christian... I had what we call in America a potty mouth. I grew up with truckers and every second word began with F. Every time. And I struggled to get that under control. And every time I do, in fact, my friend Grant and I had a pact. Every time we say something, he's in Hawaii at the moment, suffering for Jesus with his family. <laughs> but every time it would, it would just come out automatically, he'd whack me. And we got really good at almost separating shoulders. We did it that many times. So don't come near me if I'm getting that outline and you're, I know exactly the spot, Martin. <laughs> but here's what happened. That was the old way of doing things. Don't. The trouble was eventually, because it hurt every time he walloped me in there, every time he did that, I would stop saying it after a while. It went from this down to this. And that was good. That's a good start. But I had a problem. And that problem was I was still swearing in here. Nobody could see that, but I knew. Now the problem was, I'd sold it the outside, but the inside wasn't right. And these words would just pop into my head. I didn't try, they just arrived. I needed prayer to fix that. So now, those words, the desire to even swear, and the words in my head don't even come there anymore. But it took not just physical, that was not to do with it. That could mask it, but on the inside, an operation of God's Spirit in my heart to change me from the inside. See, we try to change people from the outside in. God doesn't. He works when He truly works in His Spirit from the inside out. It's like your children. You can tell them, don't, 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 don't. But what you're looking for one day is when they decide, I don't want to do that anymore, right? It's got to come from the inside. So if you were to summarize Christianity at the beginning of this year into two words, it will be this. Changed lives. Changed. Not, or oh, turn over a new leaf. No, 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 no. Changed lives. See, God is in the business of changing lives. Changing your life, Michelle, and mine. Changing our children's, changing our grandchildren's lives. And nobody can change lives like Jesus Christ can. And he has radically changed many of you. You're going to hear some stories in the next few weeks of people that are going to stand on this platform and tell you how God has radically changed their lives. So I'm starting this new series this week called Changed from the Inside Out. And we're going to look at how God changes us for the better. So it's going to be a life-changing series. And today, we're going to hear a story from the Bible that illustrates often a process that I have observed in people's lives and certainly in my own. 
So if it happens in my life, I see it happening in many, many others, I say, hmm, maybe there's a bit of a pattern here that we can learn from so we can cooperate it rather than push against it. So the first phase I've often found in my life when God wants to change me is he starts to change me by using a crisis. You may want to write that down. A crisis will come into your life. Are you in a crisis today? (laughs) If you are, congratulations. You're about to be changed because God can use a crisis to change you from the inside out. Now, the fact is your biggest battle in life is not, will not be ever your physical health. It won't be a financial battle. Oh, you may think your biggest crisis right now is financial. And your biggest battle in life will not even be relational. Battles with other people or in your career, that, that amazing boss you've got. It won't be him or her. Or dealing with your past, that won't be your biggest battle, but your biggest battle and your biggest struggle, and we're going to look at this soon, is dealing with our relationship with God. Our struggle is about life with God. A crisis is when we struggle with God because we want to be God. We want to be in control. We struggle with giving up control. Today we're going to see an interesting example of this. And if you've got your Bibles, I would highly encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 32. That's 32. And then we have the story here about a man by the name of Jacob. Now Jacob has an unusual wrestling match. And you should probably read this this afternoon if you haven't familiarised yourself for a while. Jacob, to set the scene, is on his way home after 20 years away from home. 20 long years have gone by. And he's coming back from a foreign land with his family and all of his servants hauling across the desert. He hadn't seen his brother for 20 years. There's a reason for that. Do you remember the story? Because he just ripped his brother off, swindled the family inheritance off his brother, which it was rightly his. And Esau had been so angry about that, he said, when our father's dead, I'm going to kill you. And by the way, his father was dead. So there was a problem coming. And he died, and you'll see that in Genesis 27, 41. Now, remembering this, and on his, on his way back, Jacob was scared to death. By the way, God had told him to go back. So, like any grease ball would do, like this man is, Jacob, he kind of tries to butter up his brother. So he says, hmm, maybe if I send him some gifts ahead of time, it'll calm his anger down. Because, I mean, after you've, your whole, imagine somebody stole your parents' here inheritance off you. This is how ticked he was. Esau was fuming with Jacob. So Jacob, again, scared to death. So he sends some messengers out with gifts to try and appease his offended brother. You know, calm down, brother. Here's some gifts. Here's some gifts. You know, actually multiple sets of them. He's returning. However, when he sends the gifts out, the messengers give the gifts and then they come back. And that's what they say to Jacob. He said, we've given him the gifts. But I've got to tell you, Esau's coming and he's got 400 men with him. Now, just think about that. What would you think? Maybe the gift didn't work, huh? <laughs> Maybe it's a little short. Maybe he's still steaming mad at you. So fearing this reunion, which is about to happen, Jacob thinks, holy smokes, what am I going to do? So he separates his wife and his family and he sends them 
across, over, over a river, which is a river, um, um, Jabbok, to meet his brother with gifts. You know, he sends his wife and family out there as well to try and sort of calm him down as well. So then, and by the way, that's where the place is. That's literally where Jabbok is. So he sends his wife and kids across the river with even more gifts to sort of calm him down. And in the meantime, he's left on the other side all alone. The Bible says in Genesis 32, then Jacob was left all alone on the other side in a camp. He's waiting. The Bible says if you go back and read it, he's praying. You read that prayer. In that prayer, there's a lot of fear. He knows there's an impending doom coming. He's scared of the confrontation. This man has been creating mayhem all of his life, creating chaos, and he's always running from it. He's alone. And then the Bible says, and the man came and wrestled with him until dawn. When the man saw that he couldn't win the match, he struck Jacob's hip and knocked it out of joint at the socket. Some people have wondered who was Jacob wrestling with. But the Bible actually tells us who he was wrestling with. At this point, God's invisible world openly touches Jacob's visible world. And Hosea actually tells us clearly his opponent was the incarnate God in a wrestling match. Hosea says this, Before Jacob was born, he struggled with his brother. When he became a man, he even fought with God. So this guy fought all of his life. How do you struggle before with your brother before you're even born? Well, the point is, Jacob and Esau were twins. They were twins. Get that. Now, they were so feisty, the Bible talks about, as, as um, Esau hops out of the womb, Jacob's hanging on to his heel. Literally, as it pops out of the birth canal. So they're even fighting in the womb. The Bible talks about that. All of this man's life, Jacob's life, he had struggled with his brother. But his biggest battle was with God. Now, I want you to think about your biggest conflict. Your biggest problem you've got right now. And some of you, it'll come to mind straight away. Regardless of that problem, I can tell you two things about it. It boils down to basically two two issues. One, will I obey God in this situation, do what He says is right, whether I like it or not? And two, will I trust God in the situation to handle it? Because here's the facts. Firstly, let's rewind the clock. Before, when um, Jacob was in Israel, he was told by God to go. Go get a wife. So he did. There were problems there. Didn't exempt him from problems. Now he's got his wife, he's got his family, and, and God says to him, go back. But that doesn't exempt you from problems. It didn't for Jacob. It won't for you and it won't for me. God can help you through those problems and God's promises always will out-trump your problems. Now, funnily enough, on the way out, an angel visited him. You can go back and read the history. I haven't got time to go into this morning. So he had a bit of comfort from God, but he still had issues. On the way back, God says, go back that way. He had an angel visit him here, but he still had issues. So... The root of all of your problems is a struggle with God. You want to be God and you want to be in control. So God often will bring into your life and my life to break this dependence, stubborn self-independence is a crisis. Some of you are very familiar with that. And this instance, there's a wrestling match with God. Now what is the objective in wrestling? In wrestling, and I love that sport, your job is to pin the other guy down, hold him down, and get control over him until he taps. Three times, by the way. You've got to tap. Two's no good. I'm still holding you until he taps three times. All right? Three times, so I've got you. And then that says, I'm in control. I win. 
And all of your lives, some of you have been in battle with God. Who's going to be number one? Are you going to call the shots or is God going to call the shots? Some of you have been struggling with God and that's the root of every one of your problems. It's not trusting. You take it into your own hands and it's not obeying. You think you know better. You ignore God's instructions and you follow yours. Have you noticed, for example, how often God allows a crisis in our lives to get our attention? And all of a sudden you're flat on your back and you're forced to look up. And you've heard me say many times before, God loves you just the way you are, but He loves you far too much to let you stay that way. He wants you to grow through the crisis in your life. Why? Because you and I rarely change until the pain we feel exceeds the fear of change. Let me say that again. You and I rarely change until the pain we feel exceeds is greater than the fear of change. Then we're motivated. We don't change, for example, when we see the light we change when we've got a blowtorch on the blessed assurance. That, that hurt. I'll move. Too painful. Some of you are in phase one in crisis. Once you get there, you move to phase two. This is how God changes you. And this is through a commitment. In a commitment phase, what's important here is our commitment is challenged and we need to refuse to let go. When we, this is when we say, I'm sticking with this until I get it sorted. And if you give up, you miss the blessing. Notice Genesis 32, 26. Then the man said, let me go for it's dawn. But Jacob panted. I won't let you go. Panted. This guy's out of breath. He's hanging on. He's exhausted. He said, I won't let you go, even though I'm exhausted, until, uh, excuse me, unless, the Bible says, you bless me. There's a certain tenacity that God wants to develop in your character. Now, I don't know where, if, God, if Jacob knew at that point in time that he was wrestling with God or not. Later he definitely knew. But somehow we figured it out. The one who he was wrestling was more powerful and could bless him. He figured that out. So I ain't letting go of that. He said, I'm not going to let go unless you bless me, until you bless me. Now obviously God could have overpowered him and ended that match instantly. So why did he let this struggle go on? Why did he do that? Here's the lesson. And I think God wants to firmly implant in all of our hearts. God, when God allows a crisis into your life, often I've noticed He does not solve it immediately. He lets it go for a while and He doesn't remove it. What if God answered every one of your prayers immediately? I'll tell you what would happen. A couple of problems with that. One, you'd be a spoiled brat. It'd be like the Midas touch, you know. God, I need this. Bam! War! Actually, no, I don't need that. I need this. Bam! And it'd be crazy. God doesn't answer. Thank God He doesn't answer some of your prayers immediately. You'd think He is a big vending machine. Here's how it would work. You're poking the prayer here and you pull out the result there immediately. Some of you are praying for a financial miracle in your life. Saying, I'm so in debt, I need a miracle because there's no way I can see out of this. Now, I want to say this to you. Did you get in debt supernaturally? <laughs> no. You worked very hard at that. You made some foolish decisions. And why do I, well, that's not about harsh This is what God says. God says, only a fool spends more than he earns. Some of you younger folks will hardly believe this. But some of the older folks would remember the day that if you could, say you wanted a washing machine, okay? 
You couldn't afford that. What you would do is you go to the hardware store and you'd pony up with your first $100 and you say, dear Mr. Hardware, could you please take this and you put it at the back of the shop. Don't sell it to anybody else. And I'll come back. When I paid it all off, then I'll get it. What was that called? Lay-by. And we didn't pay any interest on that. And when you got it, you didn't make any more payments. Today, it's no pony up, chung, 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 and people get into debt. You know, 2,700 easy payments. Remember, there is no such thing as an easy payment. Part of the thing that God wants to say there is self-control. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, which is sadly lacking today. By the grace of Jesus, I have never bought anything apart from cash, apart from my house. No car, no nothing. If I can't afford it, I've never bought it. That's because I grew up in a family. My mother, who was swallowing off and towering on with my other brother at the moment, taught us that. That was just natural. You can't afford it, you wait until you can afford it and pay cash for it. That's a whole other sermon. Okay, now, here's a problem with that one. Why should God bail you out of a financial pickle? If God just instantly bailed you out of a financial crisis tomorrow, you know what would happen? You'd go out and overspend again. He wants to change some fundamental things inside of you. Inside of you. Because the problem is not the advertisers, the problem isn't here. The problem is I'm easily baited by the desires within me and I follow through. You see, you'd learn no character, you'd learn no discipline, you'd learn no money management, no wisdom, no persistence or self-control if God bailed you out automatically. God is not just going to bail you out of debt that you got yourself into. He will help you get out of debt, but He's not going to do it instantly, otherwise you don't learn any lesson and you go right back to the same pattern. So God wants to build your character and he wants to teach you persistence. Many people miss God's best in life because they give up too soon. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, it says, Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. God wants to build, if you can excuse, excuse the term, some metal in your character, some stainless steel. So, if you're in a crisis now and if you have a major problem, hang in there. Don't give up. Don't cop out and do not run from it. Don't try to escape. See it through with God's help, which you're going to see Jacob does soon. The problems that you have in your life, your personal hang-ups, you didn't get those overnight. You worked years on getting yourself into a mess. And you have a lot of ingrained patterns, which God wants to change from the inside out. A lot of bad responses, a lot of wrong habits, wrong ways of responding. And so you, you have built them up over many years. So God isn't going to remove them all at once. It's kind of like, I, I think like peeling an onion. That's what he did for me. That's what he's done for many of you. He takes one thing off at a time. And often there's a few tears when you shed that onion. <laughs> one thing at a time. That's the value of having good Christian friends, godly counsel from the Word of God. And maybe, if necessary, I'll say it very clearly, getting some Christian counsel. There's nothing wrong with that at all. If you've got a financial problem, where do you go? Accountant. If you've got a tax problem, where do you go? A tax accountant. Not The two aren't the same, by the way. If you've got a medical problem, where do you go? The doctor. But you've got to recognise the issue and get on with it. So God can help you remove those bad habits one layer at a time. And it takes a long time to wise up and then give it to God. Now, the third phrase is probably the most difficult. 
of all. This is the first is we have a crisis when we all struggle with God. It's about commitment and I'm in, oh, sorry, about control and I'm in control. Then there's the commitment. I'm not going to let go. I'm going to stick with it until I get blessed. That's the challenge that you have to do. Then here's the third part and it's tough, the confession. This is a phrase where it's, I find the hardest. I have to admit I'm the problem. We stop blaming other people and we admit I am the problem, the biggest problem in my own life. And until you get to this point, there is no major change in your life. This is a breakthrough. When we confess and admit we're the problem. In fact, this is where it happens, point blank. Genesis 32, 27. Then the man asked him, who? Jacob. What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Now in the context of the Bible, to disclose your name was an act of self-disclosure, a revelation of your character, your deepest identity. God says, what is your name? Now the last time Jacob was asked that question, go back and read it, he lied. He said, I'm Esau. And he stole from his father and his older brother. His father asked him, who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Lie. Now the Lord didn't ask the question in order to get information because of course he already knew. He certainly knew Jacob's name. But Jacob had a reputation for being a schemer, a manipulator, a conniver, a sly dog. This is the guy we're talking about. What is your name meant? Are you going to continue living up to that name? Deceiving yourself? Deceiving others? Or will you admit what you are, Jacob? The liar, the schemer, the manipulator. And let me change you. Will you let me? So Jacob needed to own up to who he was. And this is hard. Owning up to who we really are. Owning up to the things that we know we've done wrong. He needed to meet himself as he really was, not as he fancied himself. Jacob lived up to his name his entire life. He ripped people off. He lied to his dad who was going blind. Now that made me mad. Huh? He cheated his brother out of his rightful inheritance. Scheming, conniving. <laughs> he was one big manipulator. So when Jacob says, my name is Jacob, he's really owning up to what he really was. It was a confession of guilt. I'm a fraud. I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. One of the versions says, I am rightly named Jacob, for I have cheated my brother twice. And he's admitting it. Now, whenever I read this verse, I often wonder if you and I, me and you, were named after your greatest character fault and me after my greatest character fault, what would that be? Hi, I'm greedy. <laughs> what would your name be? Hi, I'm Mr. Negative. Hi, 
I'm angry. I've got an out of control temper. Hi. I'm lustful. Hi. I'm an alcoholic. Or I'm an addict. Or hi, I'm depressed. Or hi, I'm Mr. Timid. Hi, I'm Mr. Fearful or Mrs. Fearful. Hi, I'm Mr. Gossip or Mrs. Gossip. (laughs) I'm Miss Impatient. What would your name be if you were named after your biggest character flaw? Here's the insight. You will never be able to change. I will never be able to change until I openly and authentically and honestly admit my sin. I admit my weakness. I admit my frailty. I admit my character defect to, to, listen carefully here, firstly to God, uh, myself and God. And then secondarily to other people. You go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I can handle admitting it to me. I can handle admitting it to God, but other people? Why? Why would I ever do that? Because the Bible says confess your faults one to another. And this is especially the most important. Because the Bible says that God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. If you're prideful, God opposes egotistical, prideful attitudes. But, this is the part I like, He gives grace to those that know they haven't got it together. What is grace? Grace is the power to change. And one of the most humbling things I know of in the world to go is, this is who I am. Hi, my name's Ian. And I have a problem with materialism. Hi, my name's Brenda. And I have a problem with insecurity. Which causes me to do things unnatural and I know are not good for me or my family. You fill in the blank. Hi, I'm a warrior. Hi, I'm a domineering person. Hi, I'm the person who hates conflict and I run a mile from it. Hi, I'm an alcoholic. Admit it. Jacob says, hi. What's your name? I'm a manipulator. He fesses it up. Fill in the blank. If you want to change, what you've got to do is stop making excuses and blaming other people. You've got to admit what God and others can already see in you and me, but you won't admit what you really are inside. And when you come to God and say, God, I really want to own up to the weaknesses, the wrong in my life, the dishonesty, the shading of the truth, whatever it is, and you tell God, this is who I really am. You know what? God isn't even surprised. You go, gee, do you think he's going to say, I missed that? He knows perfectly well. That was a surprise. God already knows. You just need to own up to yourself and to others. And this is the most difficult part of change. And then we come to the good part. But three, don't brush it off quickly. That is the hardest part. But if you're serious about being changed from the inside out, you've got to camp on that 
not just briefly run over the top of it. Number four. Then comes the fourth stage in the process of change, and that's conversion. Now, in a conversion, we are given a brand new identity. I love this. I love this. Look at God's loving, gracious response to Jacob's confession. Once he fesses, he's humbled himself. Here comes the grace. Here it is, Genesis 32. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, swindler, manipulator, deceiver, but Israel. And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face. Now the transformation begins. Notice three things that happen. First, he gets a brand new identity. Your name was Jacob, the manipulator. That's the old you down there. And we're not going to call you that anymore. In the Bible, receiving a new name signified making a brand new beginning. Amazing. Who was the first one that comes to mind? How about Abraham? Abraham became who? Abraham. How about Sarai became, how about Cephas became Peter? No longer. Now your name is not Cephas, it is Peter. And upon this rock will I build my church of the faith he was talking about, not Peter himself. The faith, okay, important to know that. So this was Jacob's opportunity for a brand new beginning. We're going to change your name. We're going to call you Israel, which means prince with God. That's nice, adopted into the family. A whole nation is named after this God. The second meaning of this name is God fights. It meant that God would fight for Israel. Hmm, seems to be still doing that today. God says, I know you've blown it, I know you're a conniver, but beneath all of your emotional hang-ups and all of your insecurities, which actually drove that behaviour, all the stuff you don't want anybody else to know about, I will fight for you. And God would say that to you today, many of you. You can be what I made you to be. God didn't make him to be a conniver. He was making wrong choices, but God there, when he confessed, God gave him the power and the desire to change. So, you can be what I made you to be, not what you are now, but what I made you be, if you just own up. So God is in the new identity business. Once we own up. Once we own up. So Jacob gets a new identity. Then once he owns up, what happens? God blesses him. The Bible says there. Then he blessed him there. And the third thing is, then he is giving you a reminder of his experience. So you'll never forget for the rest of his life. And you'll find God will do this to you. He will give you some concrete reference points which are totally indisputable when you had an encounter with God. I probably had five or six of them in my life. Torture me. Do whatever you will. I will never deny those. They're irrefutable reference points. So, here it is. The sun rose as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Now, when God touched the wrestler's hip, it shriveled. And with it, Jacob's persistent self-confidence also shriveled. His carnal weapons were lame and they were useless. They failed him in his contest with God. 
So what he had surmised for the past 20 years now dawned upon him. He was in the hands, the sovereign hands of the one whom against struggle is useless. And after this crippling touch, Jacob's life changed and it took a brand new direction. Now crippled in his natural strength, he became bold in faith and you would never walk again the same. And it's a reminder of that event. When you really meet God, you will never walk again the same. So, if you are saying, I'm a Christian, and your life has not changed a bit, you're really not a Christian. Because you've never really met God. You cannot meet somebody who's so great as God and not have your desires changed. Let me put it in a very small way. Maybe you will, this will help communicate the fact. One day, in the middle of my confused teenage years, somebody walked into my life and it changed the way I saw everything from the inside out. That person sitting on the front row. Love changed my behaviour. There was an effect that happened. I, I know some parents tell me, my son's got a girlfriend, all of a sudden, the house is immaculate, the lawns are mowed, and the gardens are pruned. What happened? Love motivated a change. It wasn't because mum said, get out there and do that. There was all, oh, is there anything else I can do mum? Can I vacuum for you? Can I do the bathroom for you? You'd be surprised what love does. It affects a change. You want to do the right thing now. Jacob would never walk the same again. So what's the significance of this limp? Two quick things. It stopped Jacob's lifelong pattern of running. It's not God's will for you to run from a problem, a tight spot. He was in a tight spot. But in his own strength, he was trying to figure out, well, we'll start piling money off that way. Complete waste. Never needed to do that. If it had been patient and prayed and trusted and obeyed. God is more interested in changing your character than making you comfortable. If you don't write anything else down, write that. The other thing this limp signifies is it's a daily reminder to depend upon God, not your own strength. That was a big one I had to learn. As a business guy, one of the things I prided myself on, Martin's in the same shoes. Month and month out, you have a whacking great target to meet every month. For me, it was 33 million a month. For Martin, he owns that problem. Every month, you start with at zero. And when, you, and when you get the code cracked and, you, and you're constantly pumping those numbers for the company, you're great. And all of a sudden you leave that and God says, I want you to leave all that. Your perceived source of strength. I can do that at least and keep the company and other people employed. That's a good thing. And all of a sudden God may say to you, I want you to leave it. But that's my source of strength. How am I going to provide for my family? Well, hang on. Are you relying on your natural strength or are you relying on me? Big challenge. So this limp signifies a daily reminder to depend upon God, 
your thigh muscle is a strong muscle in your body. And God touched Jacob at this point of great strength and created a weakness out of it. From that point onwards, God was going to have to, uh, Jacob was going to have to stand in on God's power, not in his own. And Jacob leaves the situation both two things, stronger and weaker at the same time. He's not the same person anymore. There's been a conversion. All the junk of the past has been dealt with. But it's also weaker because he's now going to have to depend upon God. But as Paul said, my, in, his strength, in my weakness, God's strength is perfected. That's what he said. We have to remember to depend upon God on his strength, not our own. And this may be the most important thing to say to you today. God does his deepest work in your life and in mine when he deals with your identity, who you really are. Who are you? The way you see yourself, your self-perception. For me, one of the questions that he had to sort in my life is what is success? What does that really look like? Is it what the world says? Do I have to chase that mirage? What is that? The way you see yourself affects everything in your life. And if you think you are such and such a person, you tend to act in accordance with the image of yourself. If you're shy, if I'm outgoing, if I'm a loser, if I can't stop this habit, whatever, you'll always tend to act with the way you think. And the Bible's clear about that. As a man thinketh, so shall he be. So God does his deepest changes in your life by changing the way you see yourself. He says, let me show you how I see you. And he sees you, we sang about that this morning, through eyes of unconditional love. And when you see yourself the way that God sees you, it is going to change your life. And you start acting a whole different way. You know, only Jesus Christ can give you a whole new identity and can change you from the inside out. Only Jesus Christ can change people radically from slipping down, down the slippery pole of addictions, like a grease pole straight to hell. I've had to deal with that twice in my family. Only Jesus Christ can do that, change you from the inside so the next few weeks, you're going to hear from two individuals who've been radically changed and given a whole new identity. No seminar, no therapy, no fad, no tape, no nothing, no book. Nothing is going to change you like getting Jesus Christ into your life because he's a specialist in your identities. Last scripture on your outline. Look at this. This is the reality, friends. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Message is this. You do not have to stay the same. Let's close the prayer. I'd like to close with four very personal questions. You don't have to close your eyes. But I would ask you to just bow your heads and think about these various questions. The first one will be, in what area are you struggling with God? Where do you know 
the right thing to do, but you just keep ignoring God. And you're fighting Him on it. You're wrestling with Him. And you know what you ought to do. You know what's right, but you won't obey Him. You keep disobeying. My challenge to you is, why won't you trust God with that problem? You're trusting Him for your salvation, for eternity. Why not give Him that problem? What is that to Him? And you've been wrestling with that situation for so long, and it seems to you to be a no-win situation. So can I encourage you to stop being afraid of letting God control your life and give Him the steering wheel? Second question I want to ask you, deeply personal. In what areas have you felt like giving up in? Right now, for some of you sitting here, You may be ready to walk out on your marriage. Can I just say to you, don't do that. Give it to God and get some help. We've got councils we can put you in touch with who can help you. Just call the church office. Third, and probably the most toughest question of the day, is what do you need to admit about yourself? When are you going to face the truth about you? I am a blank, whatever that is, fill it in. When are you going to have the courage to share it with other people? Because remember, the revealing of feeling is the beginning of healing. And fourth and finally, will you let God give you a new identity? Because God knows that underneath all that emotional hang-up and baggage, He sees what He designed you to be, the potential you have. You do not have to stay the same. Would you say today, Jesus, I don't want to be the same anymore. I don't want to be lethargic. I don't want to be apathetic. I want to change. I want to follow you wholeheartedly. I want 2016 to be a red letter year for you and I. Today, I'm stepping across this line. Help me, Holy Spirit. I pray this in the matchless name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And everybody who loved him said, Amen. God bless you.